Let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us today your great faithfulness to us, even in our faithlessness, and give us your spirit that we might cleave ever more closely to you and your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, today I want to talk about faithfulness. Faithfulness is hard. It's hard to make a commitment and to keep to it, to be true, loyal, steadfast, unchanging. There are a thousand reasons for this. We just forget stuff sometimes and you make a commitment and you don't keep it because at the critical moments you forgot. You forgot something. Uh, There are less innocent reasons why we are not faithful. Uh, Sometimes the commitments we've made become inconvenient and we can't be bothered. We prefer to do what is better for us at a later moment. Or we overestimate our own capacities. We are then dismayed to discover that we cannot show up and be faithful when the moment comes for us. We have overpromised and we underdeliver. Where we uh, struggle to be faithful, God is faithful. He is true to himself, true to his word and true to his people. And the fruit of his spirit in our lives includes the quality of faithfulness, says Paul in Galatians 5. So today I want to think about our unfaithfulness first, then God's faithfulness, and then our faithfulness. Let's start with our unfaithfulness. Human unfaithfulness to God repeats itself time and again. All three of our readings touch on human unfaithfulness. And we see in these readings different sources of human unfaithfulness. In our Old Testament reading from Exodus 32, faithfulness ari- faithlessness arises uh, in part, at least, out of impatience. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 32, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who has brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. If you've been with us for our readings through Exodus, you will know that uh, in Exodus 24, the people have signed up to a covenant with God and a a deal. Um, And one of the first stipulations of that covenant, that arrangement by which they would be God's people and he would be their God, it's a kind of marriage. They get together and they promise things to one another. One of the first stipulations was that God had said, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Other peoples had images of their gods, but Israel was to be different. And since then, uh, Moses had gone up the mountain and uh, disappeared into a cloud. And days passed, a week, two weeks, no word, no sign, nothing. And the people ran out of patience. Moses may as well be dead, they thought. We can't sit around here waiting indefinitely. So they cluster around Aaron and say, you get on with it, Aaron. You're kind of Moses 2 I see. 
You give us a way to know and to see this God who has brought us to this point. And Aaron, possibly intimidated by this, obliges. And instead of the divine template for worship that the Lord is at that very time giving to Moses up the mountain, Aaron takes up his own ideas, which turn out to be the ideas of the peoples around and about, this well-worn human template for worship. In verse 3, the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, then he, then they said These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, Aaron isn't suggesting that they worship anyone other than the God, or is it gods, it's not clear, who brought them up out of Egypt. But all of this, even though they name the God or gods who brought them out of Egypt, is still disconnected from the true God. It's still a faithless turning away, a failure to keep the explicit call of the covenant that they had made to God. It is a descent into an idolatry, a falseness, and a disconnect in their dealings with the true God. Israel did need to be patient. Faithfulness looks like patience. Moses had gone away, no date of return had been given, but Israel could not, should not have given up on him. Because in giving up on him, they're giving up on the Lord who is with him and speaking to them through him. They should have waited There was a plan. Moses was to return with what the people wanted and needed, a way to approach and worship and know God, a way to see that God was with them, but impatience led them into unfaithfulness. If we turn to 1 Corinthians 10, the epistle, thoughtlessness led to unfaithfulness in this situation. And we are thousands of years later now, in the Greek city of Corinth. And in Corinth, there were many temples and shrines, many sacrifices and rituals. And it was usual for the people living in the first century Corinth to participate in these temple rituals and sacrifices fairly freely. You weren't just committed to one temple, you milled around and everyone shared in the life of these temples. Meals were shared, which were social occasions in these temples, and sacrificial meat was served in various places. And so for those Corinthians who have become Christians and this new allegiance to Jesus, the question arose, can a Christian participate in all of this, this worship in temples and shrines, these meals and feasts? And part of Paul's answer to this is to say, no, you can't. Not anymore. If you've become a Christian, you have a new loyalty to the Lord. And this means that you can't participate in the rites of other temples anymore. Don't thoughtlessly go on doing all that you used to do before you became a Christian. There is power and there is intention in the sacrifices of pagans. This life that goes on around you is not devoid of spiritual meaning and reality. These things are offered, says Paul, to demons and you can't have anything to do with it. So verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Thoughtlessness 
in just going on as we've always done instead of thinking about what does loyalty, what does faithfulness to God really look like, led to the Corinthians' quandary and downfall. Uh, Lastly, Matthew 26, our gospel reading, Jesus' disciples make bold commitments to be faithful. Peter declares, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the other disciples join in with this bold claim. But they don't know how weak they are when put to the test. Jesus had said to them, truly, I tell you, this very night before the cock rows, you will, he said to Peter, you will disown me three times. And Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows himself. Peter lacks the courage to be faithful in this way because faithfulness, again, can call for courage, can call for uh, the willingness to suffer loss, to suffer all kinds of things. And this suffering, if we are to be faithful, at times cannot and should not be shirked, must be faced with courage. Faithfulness requires And so faithfulness is hard for us. We don't always have the patience that we need. We don't always have the thoughtfulness that we need. We don't always have the courage that it requires of us. We stray into disloyalty and idolatry and betray our commitment to God and Christ. This is what it means to be in a human and sinful nature. Secondly, though, God is faithful even when we are not. God is not pleased with our faithfulness, it must be said. And so verse 9, back in Exodus 32, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. They don't want to turn the way I'm leading them. They don't want to bow the head. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and then I'll make you into a great nation. And reading that, you might say, look, God does seem actually very ready to abandon those who have abandoned him. He's quick to talk about anger burning and destroying his people. And isn't Moses the one who talks God down, who persuades God to change his mind and relent? Isn't it, in fact, Moses who is more committed to God's project than than God is? Moses is the one who wants God to bless the world and God seems to be ready to draw a line under that whole thing. Well, look, one of the principles of reading the Bible is that we hold God to be God. What it means in cases like this is it cannot be that God is like shocked and uh, surprised by what has happened as if, oh my goodness, I never saw this coming. I can't believe they've done this. And it's not that God just loses it in frustration and starts throwing things around and making wild threats that, that are just the venting of, of wild emotion. This is not God. God knows the end from the beginning and knows all things in between. He is not taken here by surprise. And God is not able to be emotionally overwhelmed so that he makes these wild threats that Moses then has to kind of hose down. This is, this is not the correct way to understand this, this uh, back and forth, this dialogue between God and Moses, because God is always master of himself. These stories of intercession, and you could look at other ones like when Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah, um, <clears throat> that involve saying God changes his mind when Moses speaks up for Israel. These scenes reveal God's nature. They reveal two important things about it. They are dialogues which underline, firstly, that sin displeases God. It really does and alienates us from him. It really does. But... Secondly, these 
engagements, these intercessions, underline that ultimately God does have commitments that are bigger than our sin can destroy. When Moses says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land, I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. When Moses says that to God, he shows that he has understood God deeply. That the sin of the children of Israel will not negate God's oath to the children of Israel. God swore that the children of Israel, the children of Israel, right, that they would be the great nation, which is different to the children of Moses becoming a great nation. And God will remain actually, in the end, faithful to the commitment he made originally that the children of Israel would be the great nation. And even when the children of Israel aren't faithful, God will remain faithful. He will, will not cast them off. He will not destroy them. He may chastise them, but he won't abandon them. Now, the cross of Jesus Christ is another story of intercession. In fact, it's the great story of intercession, the full and final story of God's uh, engaging with a man to show his fundamental displeasure at sin, but commitment to overcoming sin. That Jesus gives his life as a sacrifice for the sin of the world is an act of intercession. He stands before God to plead for us in our faithlessness. But he doesn't do this to kind of hose down an angry God who would have destroyed us all unless Jesus had luckily come along to kind of stand up and, and, and ward off God's rage and threats. That's not how we should understand the cross. Because Jesus is, in fact, sent by his Father. Uh, because God's intention is to reveal in the cross both his displeasure at our sin, that this is the curse that comes upon sinners, but his larger commitment not to destroy us, but indeed to reconcile us to himself through his Son. That is, he will be faithful to his intention for us, even when we are faithless to his intention for us. That's God's faithfulness. Thirdly and lastly, our faithfulness. Our faithfulness to God is the fruit of God's spirit in our lives. Now, St Edmund, it is, you know, tomorrow St Edmund's Day, wave a flag for him. If you don't have a flag, the, the kneel here displays the kind of flag you could make and hang outside your house tomorrow. Now, he may or may not have exhibited a shrewd and courageous faithfulness to Christ when he died at the hands of the great heathen army of Vikings in 869. The exact circumstances of his death are lost to history, but he has been remembered as a martyr, as one who died rather than turn from faithfulness to Christ. And so we can think about how did Edmund and many many other Christians like him prefer death to turning away from their loyalty to Christ. How is that so? Well, because the Lord gives us his spirit that we might do what by nature we cannot do. We might stick with him. Now, our faithfulness won't involve facing down Vikings, but there are situations that call us to faithfulness. For example, maybe in your life there is a long wait 
Perhaps you are waiting and hoping for something. An illness to pass, a quarrel to be resolved, a relationship to come into your life, a dear wish to be fulfilled, a constraint upon you to be loosened. The question then is, will we grow impatient with God and then become disillusioned about whether he does see or care or about us, about our trouble, about our anxiety? And will we turn away from him in our impatience? Or will we seek from God the patience to remain faithful in our waiting? This may be your situation. Or, secondly, we might have a compromising environment. And we are often surrounded by people who don't share our convictions and we have to make decisions about whether and how we will join in with what they are doing. And so will you go to a yoga class? What is being taught there? Is it just exercise or are you being encouraged to a yogic path for life? Will you chant on if encouraged to do so? What does that mean? Have you thought about what it might mean? Is it compatible with Christian faith? When people sit down to eat and drink and get up to indulge in revelry, will we join in? If we find it hard to avoid drunkenness, or gossip, or meanness, or sleaziness in some of the places that uh, we might in some ways find it attractive to be, will we be willing to stay away if we know no faithfulness? If I'm to be faithful, I can't have to do with that. Or will we fear missing out? And that fear will trump the wisdom of not getting involved. So... A long wait, a compromising environment. These might be challenges to our faithfulness. Thirdly and lastly, pressure. Pressure to abandon Christ. Because maybe your friends or your family or your colleagues are kind of openly hostile to you being a Christian. They ridicule your beliefs. They call you names. They complain about you to others. And it may be that you think, oh gosh, wouldn't it be just so much better if I wasn't a Christian. I would fit in so much more easily. It's too uncomfortable to be a Christian. Better just to blend in. Maybe they are right. It's better if I just leave all that behind. Look, Christian, be courageous. Be courageous. Jesus has died and has risen. God has loved us and conquered death for us through his Son. His Spirit is at work in us and through us and beyond us. And the Gospel is the hope of the world. And without it, where are we? We are cast adrift into an indifferent and pitiless cosmos. We are trying to create meaning when there isn't really much meaning to be made or building blocks to to make it with. We're perhaps begging or trying to earn the favour of some divine power and who knows if we will find mercy from that indifferent or capricious power. What you have in the gospel, Christian, is far better than any of that. It is worth knowing and hanging on to. If you and I have received God's word of eternal life, hang on, stay faithful. It matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that despite your displeasure at our sin and faithlessness, your commitment to be faithful to your purposes, to bless us and the world, is bigger. We thank you for those who show us this through their intercession with you and especially Jesus Christ, whose 
death on the cross was uh, a display both of your displeasure at sin and the curse upon it and also your, your commitment, your act of redeeming us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit that we might treasure these things and live and die faithfully to them. We ask this in his name.